Welcome to Case Closed, the Contingency Fee Podcast. On the show, our team of industry experts interviews contingency fee attorneys. You will discover everything from how they got started to the secrets of their success and what's working in today's marketplace. And now, here's the Case Closed Podcast. Welcome to the Case Closed Podcast. I'm your co-host, Michael Clannon. My guest today is Joel Greer from Bradshaw Law um, Office in Marshalltown, Iowa. A little about Joel before we get started. Um, I'm just going to ask him to share his experience and, you know, how he, what his journey was and, you know, what areas of law that he practices in or fortes in. And so, Joel, why don't you share with our listeners a little about you? Sure. Well, let's see. Uh, it started as a pretty general practice, actually. So I did everything except bankruptcy. And that included uh, criminal cases, divorces, uh, federal uh, multidistrict litigation, product liability, and things like that. And now at age 70, I have uh, kind of narrowed it down to just doing uh, civil litigation cases, primarily on the defense side. The first part of my practice, uh, when I was in Northwest Iowa, actually, was more on the plaintiff side, and I did have a medical malpractice case that kind of launched my career as a litigator on the plaintiff side. Oh, wow. Great. I've been so, doing criminal about 20 years ago, and my last divorce was four years ago with a couple that had over 20 rescue dogs. I thought there was going to be no custody battle. Oh, was <laughs> I wrong? That was, that was wrong. That was just a little curveball, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, she forgot the damn dogs. Oh my gosh. So, and talking with you before we started this podcast, I also learned that you are also the mayor of Marshalltown. So, um, how long have you been doing that role? Well, to be cheeky about it, five years, seven months, 30, 30 days. How many hours? I'm, I really yeah, want exactly. hours. Yeah, no, I've got about two and a half years left on a four year term. Oh, wow. So, you are a busy guy, not only in your practice, but, you know, giving back to your city, basically and that. So can you, um, can you describe your experience in civil litigation, including um, notable cases in insurance defense? You did mention the the medical malpractice and personal injury. Sure. Well, the medical malpractice case was at the time, it was the largest verdict against a doctor in Iowa. And that was in 1984. Uh, Bad case, botched birth with uh, really serious injuries. And so the verdict really, even though it was high for Iowa, wasn't big enough for the family to keep the the little girl in uh, good enough care all of her life. So that was a, a learning experience. I've had a couple cases uh, in that field since then, but not everyone that went to trial. And I actually defended some after that. When I was working in uh, Spencer, Iowa, we did uh, some kind of high-profile cases that involved multi-district litigation. There was a yellow sheet uh, antitrust type of case against IBP and uh, some fairly interesting uh, theft cases, theft of seed corn Mm -hmm. cases, one resulting in a $10 million verdict against one of the uh, seed companies near Cedar Rapids, actually. And so that was kind of uh, kind of fun. I ended up on the uh, IAJ is what they call it now, uh, Iowa Association of Justice. Back then it was the Iowa Trialers Association Board and ended up being a vice president there. 
when we started having children, we moved to back to Sharon's hometown area in Marshalltown here. And uh, this was an insurance defense firm. So that became my primary uh, focus of litigation. So since moving here, I ended up on the Iowa Defense Council Board. Sharon was the president of that years before that. And the practice has been pretty much insurance defense litigation. Uh, it involves some fairly big contract cases of, you know, had a, uh, oddly enough, a cattle loss case that uh, the demand was over $2 million down in Powersheet County. And then some very interesting personal injury cases and explosion cases, things like that. Right. Wow. So across the gamut, it sounds like. Mm -hmm. um, could you share a memorable or challenging case from your, uh, I believe you've had 168 jury trials that went to verdict? Actually, 100, 173. 173 now, so yeah. you were a little behind. Yeah, well, I had a wild a year, a half, a year and a half ago, I had three jury trials in three weeks in a row. The first was a serious personal injury case. The second was a quarter of a million dollar breach of contract between contractor subcontractor case. And the third one was another big personal injury case. Uh, I don't know how mm -hmm. I survived that, honestly. But that is how it's crept up to the 173 level. In terms of uh, challenging, hmm, I don't know. Um, I had a huge verdict against my client in a personal mm -hmm. injury case that was the biggest shock I've ever had. And fortunately, that one resulted in a mistrial. So we were able to settle the case. But uh, sometimes, actually, back in the divorce arena, those were more challenging. If I if I limited my practice to representing the party, I thought I'd have primary physical care. Mm -hmm. It was sometimes a real challenge, especially if I was representing the dad and the mom was okay. Those were the toughest cases I've actually handled. Right, right. One of your most memorable, memorable cases that you think about a lot. I've written my first draft of the book, actually. And, hey, congratulations. And so what I want to do before I forgot all these things is uh, capture the things that were funny mm -hmm. and interesting. And so the two stories that come to mind, uh, invo one involves a pizza dough rolling case where my client got her hand into the cover device that was supposed to keep male hands out of it, but didn't keep female hands out of it. And uh, her orthopedic surgeon was testifying. First time he'd ever testified, but he was a really good testifier and a really good doctor. And he, uh, when he left the witness chair, he took the wrong door. He could have gone out the back door that would have taken him into the hallway and gotten out of the courthouse. Instead, he went into the supply closet behind the jury and, and he shut the door. And of course, the jury and the judge and all the lawyers knew uh oh, the he's in the closet. <laughs> and, and he waited in there about five seconds, which felt like five minutes, and came out and sheepishly kind of uh, looked around and you know, <laughs> went through the right door. And so that case is just remarkable just because it was such a big laugh, and everybody laughed, including my right. client. His hand was hurt. And then another one was one of those typical slip and fall cases on, on ice. Um, it was a professor over at Iowa State University who had blown his hand off when he was 18 years old in a science experiment, mm. uh, but he had built the device that would allow him to pick up a single sheet of paper off the table. I was pretty proud of that, and the jury had heard mm. about all of this beforehand. The case involved 
he was trying to walk from his doctor's office to the hospital over in Nevada and uh, jumped over my client's one piece of kind of icy sidewalk and broke his ankle, I think it was, or or other wrist, something like that. Right. Anyway, when it was time for him to testify, Judge Moon, who's one of my favorite now retired judges, uh, said, uh, Professor, would you uh, stand up here and would you raise your right uh, would you swear and affirm to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth? And even the professor laughed at that one, too. So those two cases stand out as more interesting, funny right. things. Right, right. Oh, yeah, definitely. Right. Yeah. You got to find humor. And some people don't think there's humor in things that happen, you know, because it's always, you know, negative or you know what I mean yeah, in that. So what key insights have you gained from handling approximately 38 appeals in various legal areas? Well, on the appeals, uh, I have learned making your record is absolutely pivotal. And uh, I've tried a lot of cases against lawyers that did not know that. Mm -hmm. And the appeals are tougher uh, when the record isn't very well made. Since my wife is an appeals court judge, I, I kind of vicariously get that uh, reminder of the lawyers that aren't making the record, aren't making the motions. They don't, if there's a ruling on a motion in limine, uh, they forget that they still need to make the objection during right. the trial and that sort of thing. So that's one thing I learned on, on handling appeals. Another one is well, my best appeal brief was my shortest. Yeah. And it worked. And it took me a lot of time to cut it down to really being short. I didn't waste any words or paragraphs right. in that brief. And the argument was pretty short. And so I'm proudest of it. It wasn't a big case, uh, but I did learn that was better to take the time and, and shorten it like that. Uh, if, I, if I'm writing an appeal brief and don't have a lot of time, it tends to be too long and too repetitive. And I I'm know sure. now from the woman I, I sleep with, um, that doesn't sell well. Right. So speaking of that, not about the sleeping, but you said your wife is a judge. She's a... Did I yeah. hear that? Iowa Court of Appeals. Right. Oh, okay. All right. So does that... Um, how does that come into play between you two? Like, meaning, does she do cases that you do, that you uh, represent? She, she would recuse herself from anything right. I had anything to do with. And right. the, the judges have to recuse themselves from uh, handling anything that the law firm they have been associated with... Uh, at least for a year later, but uh, most of the judges I know do a lifetime recusal from not taking right. cases that they had been involved in with right. firms that they've been involved in. So do you, and then what you, it really means is yeah. I never have the last word. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like, are you able to ask her for advice about cases that she's not representing or I can do that. She has okay. to be circumspect about what advice right. you can get. Right. Actually. Right. Okay. No, that, I, that's, you know, that's kind of unusual, right? Yeah. It you is. Know. I can also give her advice. You know, generally, if there's but a case she, on appeal uh, involving something I'm, I'm familiar with, I, well, nothing keeps yep. me from. Here's the question. Her. Does she overrule you? If you had asked what percentage that happens in the law versus what happens in decorating our home or that sort of thing, I'm not sure how I would answer it. Um, right. It might not be good to answer. Just say, hmm, that's interesting. Right? Yeah. And, <laughs> that's a good actually, question. Before she was appointed to the Court of Appeals, we practiced from the day she was, uh, well, 
she had an interesting week when we were married. Yeah. Bar exam on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. We had a rehearsal dinner on Friday. We were married on Saturday and in Marshall County here. And then on Sunday, we were up in Clay County, up in Spencer, having a, a wedding anniversary for my folks' 40th. And we did our honeymoon and and uh, came back. And two weeks later, she started practicing with me in Dad's firm. And so until she was appointed to the Court of Appeals about four years ago, she and I worked together. Okay. And we had one case together and involving custody, modification of custody. And during that case, Judge Hamilton from Spirit Lake pulled us up to the bench and said, if you guys don't start getting along better, you're going to each need your own divorce lawyer. So we agreed we would never work on the same case at the same time again. Right. And we never did. But it was handy because if she had depositions in one case and couldn't do a hearing in another case, I could sub for her. She could sub for me. And we did that all the time. Oh, as, okay. as long as we weren't in the courtroom together. Right. Uh, that worked out very well. And, you know, I never had to worry that she was wondering, why am I working so late? on <laughs> Or, she was doing the same thing, probably. Or vice versa. And typically she was working later than I was. You know, <laughs> It's worked out pretty well. Oh, that's good. That's good. How has your academic background at the University of Iowa influenced your legal career? Well, I was supposed to go to Stanford undergrad. And a week before classes started, I decided I would probably be an Iowa lawyer. So why didn't I just go to Iowa City instead? Mm -hmm. And I think that was probably a good choice. I got a good education at the uh, University of Iowa undergrad and uh, probably did let me have more connections. Now, when it was time to apply for law school, I applied to Stanford and they said, no, thanks. Mm, uh, right. So I went to Iowa law school, but I think that helped as well. And so I don't know if you've got my resume, I ended up being the president of the Iowa Alumni Association. And then I have been on the Iowa Law School Foundation Board. So I've kept up the connections. We are literally driving tonight over to Iowa City. Oh, okay. Program Alan Page, who was one hell of a football player and is on the Minnesota Iowa uh, Supreme Court, is the speaker. And it's like, well, we can't miss that one. That's right too interesting so right that's where we're going tonight so we've kept up the connections with the uh university of iowa and it has not hurt in the legal career to have those connections i think now sharon right. was an iowa state undergrad and wrestling cheerleader so we tend to go to the football and basketball games over in ames too and so we mm -hmm. have those connections the undergrad in either one of those universities has uh, probably helped most of us that are in the law here practicing. Right, right. especially being in Iowa, staying in Iowa. So how have uh, memberships and organizations like Phi Beta Kappa and the American College of Trial Lawyers impacted your professional growth? Well, the Iowa Academy of Trial Lawyers is kind of the fun one to talk about because Dad ended up being the president of it years ago. He was also the president of the International Society of Barristers, which is kind of crazy when you figure he's practicing in a town of 11,000. Uh, I was happy to get admitted into it and then delighted to become the president of the Iowa Academy as well. It's limited to 250 lawyers. There are 9,000 lawyers hmm. admitted to practice in Iowa. Uh, the, the cap is 250 lawyers in the Academy. So you have to have enough trial experience and not have honked off enough judges or opponents to right. Get blackballed. And so I was kind of pleased to get in. And then 
uh, believe it or not, Sharon was uh, elected to be the incoming president of the Iowa Academy of Trial Lawyers too. And so when her vice president year was happening, she was in charge of getting the program put together, which is where you have to do all the work. Right. And right before she got to take the the uh, gavel to be the president, the governor appointed her to the Iowa Court of Appeals. So she had to step aside and the <laughs> next incoming person had to be the president. But we would have kept that one in the family pretty well. Sure. And what that does is it lets us know and rub elbows with uh, at least annual, but sometimes oftener than that, uh, with the best trial lawyers in Iowa. Mm-hmm. And that not only is instructive and good for referrals to each other, and that's right. sort of, it's just a lot of fun. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the best lawyers in Iowa tend to have good senses of humor and are interesting people outside the law. So we just delight in going to the Iowa Academy meetings. Well, we're both in the American College of Trial Lawyers, too. That's top of one half of 1%. And so nationally, we get to rub elbows right. with the best lawyers in that country. Those events are just uh, delightful, fun. We come home with uh, stomachs hurting from laughing so much. Well, I also learn stuff. You know, I have the speakers that these things are really good. Right, right. And I'm guessing you've been a speaker probably at some point of those? Uh, not nationally, but I have. Uh, I've been a kind right. of a frequent speaker at the Academy and trial lawyers and defense counsel things. Yeah. Right. Can you discuss your contributions as president of the Iowa Bar Association and the Iowa Academy of Trial Lawyers? That's a good question. That's a good question, right? Never had to answer that one. Uh, I can tell you what my goal was, and I think I accomplished it. It was to uh, uh, leave the organization a little better than I I found it when I started. The thing I wanted to do for the Iowa State Bar Association was make the monthly article that you have to write interesting enough that people actually read it start to finish. And I think I did that. Uh, Some of them were funny. Some were pretty serious, but gripping. And so that was, I met my goal to, to do that. We didn't have any major challenges. Nothing as tough right now as the budget crunch and trying to keep the mm-hmm. uh, court-appointed lawyers getting a salary that at least lets them keep their lights on. And and uh, we didn't have the attacks on the judiciary when I was the president of the state bar. So that uh, that was I probably had an easy year. Well, I had several right. jury trials that year, and I was without an assistant for uh, <laughs> about two months. So that was a challenge to get everything done. Right. Uh, for the Iowa Academy Trailers, that one is an organization that pretty well runs itself and we have good staff people. Um, uh, there wasn't any, I didn't really have any major agenda item to uh, to put forward there, but I didn't get arrested and didn't embarrass right. the organization while I was <laughs> the president of it. <laughs> How have you witnessed the evolution of the uh, legal landscape uh, particularly in areas like insurance defense, medical malpractice? Well, I learned in medical malpractice, uh, by the way, in that lawsuit I told you about at the start, mm-hmm. I lost 19 pounds and resumed smoking and turned down a big offer and took a big risk. And then we ended up with a big verdict and we were wow. lucky. But the first vote by the jury was more for the doctor than for our clients. And so... That told me that malpractice cases are tough to win, and they mm-hmm. are. And statistically, they're still, 
I think it's a, about an 80% chance of losing a malpractice case if you're the plaintiff in Iowa. Right. Uh, although the other trend that's happened lately, especially after COVID, is the verdicts, the, the ones that win, win kind of big. So we're seeing some huge numbers that we hadn't seen before. Right. My right. verdict my verdict back in 84 with interest was just under a million, but we're seeing 20, 25 million, that sort of thing now. So it kind of takes my breath away. And yeah, it's hard to fathom that, isn't it? I mean, that's like, that's a big difference from back then to now. It is. I, you know, I still don't make the adjustment to, you know, what should a car cost or a home cost with uh, adjusted mm -hmm. for inflation these days. Right. But that's been interesting. In terms of insurance defense litigation, um, I just, I just fired one of the insurance companies mm. two weeks ago. I said, I'm not doing any more of your cases. Um, I'll finish the ones I've got, but the way that the, industry has gone, made it less and yeah. less fun. And yeah. so where I was accustomed to doing my own medical reviews and summaries, and I'm good at them, and I've never had a, a staff person do them as well as I think I can. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important for the client. You know, I've had nurses who did reviews. When I went through the records, I could find something they didn't that really was important, and I latched onto it and, I, and it made a difference. Well, this carrier doesn't pay for the lawyers to do that. And so uh -huh. that was one problem that I had with it. Uh, the reporting requirements are pretty stringent. And it seems to me, if they trust me to handle a case, they should trust me to let them know what they need to know, when they need to know it, instead right. of you know, every so many months or, or whatever. And then, right. yeah, people I was dealing with uh, had, when I started with that company, uh, they were local, they were in Iowa, we knew each other, we trusted each other. Uh, not one of them that I have cases pending for right now is anywhere close to Iowa. They're in different time zones. They don't right. understand who I am, where I am geographically, how I know what a uh, different mm -hmm. county in a different district is likely to compare to another county in another district because I've tried cases in all, right. all the districts. And so I got to the point where it just wasn't wasn't that much fun anymore. And uh, yep, the firm didn't want to continue to take the cases and have the younger uh, lawyers handle them either. Well, let's talk about that. So what advice do you have for aspiring attorneys aiming to make an impact in their careers and communities? Well, the best attorneys I know and the ones that really do excel, don't just try lawsuits, uh, which you have to do. You know, mm -hmm. uh, no, no insurance company will take you seriously if you're a plaintiff's lawyer, if you don't try the lawsuits and get in front of a jury and get some results. And frankly, if you're a defense attorney and you're uh, losing trying cases, that's not going to be too good for you either. So you got to try the cases. But the best attorneys I know also give back to the bar, get involved in the bar associations. They're on the bench bar conference. They're uh, helping the community out. I'm not the first lawyer that's been a mayor in town here. I follow mm -hmm. something like five former mayors were lawyers. And they were really, right. really good lawyers and were good mayors. And I know Sioux City and Cedar Rapids and other big cities have had uh, lawyer mayors. Uh, so uh, that gives them a little more breadth than mm -hmm. the lawyers that just practice and just clock in. And, and there are some I know that try lawsuits. They just don't have much of a life outside of that. Right. Uh, but I would say to a young lawyer coming out of law school, uh, if you want to be a litigator, 
find a way to get into the courtroom that may require doing criminal cases at the start, mm -hmm. frankly. And then also don't forget there's another world out there and your law degree get, gives you some power to help your community and help your organization and do other things. Right. Are there any upcoming projects or cases that you're enthusiastic about um, sharing with our audience? Actually, I have the lightest caseload coming up that I've ever had in my lifetime in terms of the stakes. They're pretty much um, car accident cases, slip and fall cases. I don't have any interesting product liability case. I'm not working on any medical malpractice case. I do have one legal malpractice case. I, we started that one two weeks ago, and there was a mistrial before the second question was asked in voir dire. So that one's going to be retried in November. And so I, I do look forward to that one because I think right. it's going to be a slam dunk and, uh, you know, gets published to my opponent. He'll, he'll not like that, but uh, it will be. Mm -hmm. In terms of looking forward to things, uh, uh, that's probably going to be the, the most interesting, mm -hmm. but it's the first one coming up. I usually do have one that's got an interesting fact pattern, and we tend to name cases. Uh, okay. We give them a theme that somehow involves the type of case or the plaintiff's name or something like that. So uh, give us an example. Like, what's one that comes to mind? Well, one that I did to a, the, an appeal by the pro se plaintiff was uh, a gentleman named Heidi who was arrested for going the wrong way in a one-way street uh, it turns out he was also intoxicated, and um, when he was calling his lawyer, it was recorded. You could hear his part of the conversation on the phone asking his lawyer if he knew what peyote was, which wasn't a good idea. And then while the case was uh, pending on appeal, he applied for informal papyrus to have the defendant have to pay for the transcript of the hearing that we had because he didn't have a job. And then his next motion was for a continuance of his uh, filing deadline because it was harvest time. And I thought, well, that was kind of interesting. I don't have a job or any money, but now I need additional time to harvest. And then what I figured was it wasn't corn or beans or rye that he was probably harvesting. His name was Heidi. And so we called that one the Heidi, Heidi Hope case. Yeah, <laughs> Last question. What are your thoughts on the future of the legal profession, including anticipated trends and challenges? Well, the big worry right now, and I know this because at the Iowa Defense Council meeting, it was a topic of discussion. We had a good lawyer from out east come in to talk about what is AI going to do to the profession. Mm -hmm. And our bench bar conference, I'm on that committee still and chaired that a couple of times in the years past. Uh, we're going to be looking at kind of the same topic uh, Will we still be writing briefs and that sort of thing? Uh, the most interesting trend to me was watching that we went from being hired to do a lot of legal research to having the Fortune 500 companies going out of the country to Pakistan or Bangladesh or wherever they could mm -hmm. have legal research done by people who were not lawyers, but were really brilliant and could do it. And so Fortune 500 companies were... We're uh, going that way. So I do fear a little bit that the brief writing and arguments and things like that might shift into AI and require less lawyer work. But I'm convinced that uh, the system will always need people that can have common sense and analyze the facts and know the lay of the land and persuade people. And that's mm -hmm. that's why there will always be lawyers. 
Right. Um, so I'd say don't fear going to law school. I was encouraged to see that the law school class this year at Iowa has the highest grade point and the highest average LSAT score ever. So wow. it's still popular. People who are still well qualified are getting into it. And uh, and to the extent that litigation isn't as common as it used to be, you know, mediation seems to be more common. Well, we yeah. need people that can mediate. Mediate. Well. Right. Oh, yeah. Is there anything else, Joel, that you want that you want to share with our listeners about you, your practice, or anything? I can't think of anything, honestly. I haven't been actively drumming up business and looking for work. I've gotten mm-hmm. more and more selective as I've gotten older. Sure, sure, definitely. Actually, I am a really good resource, though. About if I'm not going to handle something, who could? Because I right. know, haven't been the president of the bar and of the academy. I kind of know which lawyers are on their game, right. which areas of the state. Right. So you've built a lot of relationships and I'm sure you have a lot of people coming to you for advice and, yeah. you know, you're going to steer them in the right direction. And you'd be a person I'd come to now. because <laughs> <laughs> well, It sounds like, you know, a lot of people in different areas. Michael, you don't know. get arrested. Don't call me. No, that's the best advice, right? Right, right. (laughs) Well, Joel, thank you. Thank you very much for joining us and agreeing to do um, the Case Closed podcast with us. So I've been uh, your host for the Case Closed podcast, and I've been talking with Joel Greer from uh, Bradshaw Law in uh, Marshalltown, Iowa. So if you'd like to learn more about Joel or Bradshaw Law, how can our listeners find you on the internet? It is BradshawLaw.com, actually. Okay. Actually, enough. If you Google my name, you'll hide well. Yeah. Yeah. And also your mayor will come up too, because when I Google you, it brought up mayor. So, well, thank you so much for being our guest today on the Case Closed podcast and look forward to um, future Case Closed podcast. Uh, This has been your host, Michael Clanton. Thank you very much, Joel. Thank you, Michael. I know. Thank you for listening to another episode of Case Closed, the Contingency Fee Podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening to this week's guests and their insight. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. Case Closed, the Contingency Fee Podcast is led by industry experts who unlock insights from the nation's top contingency fee attorneys. Each week on the show, the guests share how they got started, secrets of their success, and what's working in today's marketplace. Guests on the Case Closed podcast include successful contingency fee attorneys that will share their secrets so you can close more cases. Tune in each week for a dynamic conversation about winning legal strategies that will grow your business. 